So God gave us, let me start my timer so I don't go till next Sunday. Uh, God gave us imaginations, right? You guys have imaginations or am I the only one, right? Um, it's actually really fun now that she's not in the room, I can say this, to watch Izzy in heaven and their little imaginations go, right? Um, one of the things I think that's important when we read the Bible is to read the Bible with our imaginations going. Now, here's what I mean by this. I, we should read the Bible and really think about, you know, these are real people and try to imagine what it was like to actually be there. So I want to do that today as we start. I want to tell you the story of two disciples. Uh, the first one is a guy named Cleopas. Anybody's looking for baby names? Cleopas, right? Great Bible name there. Uh, and the other disciple in our story isn't given a name, but a lot of people think it was his wife, you know, Cleopas and his wife. Now, these two, you can imagine at some point they met Jesus for the first time. Maybe they were at the feeding of the 5,000. We read about that. Imagine what that would have been like to be in a big crowd of people and the disciples just keep bringing bread and fish and bread and fish. And you, you know, in a, in, an, in a time where people didn't really stuff themselves the way we treat every meal like Thanksgiving, you know, here in America, and we always leave a restaurant like this. Oh, you know, they didn't do that hardly ever because they didn't have a lot of food, right? So imagine you're, you're part of this thing. And this is, this is the feeling you leave with. And you hear the story of the miracle and you go, wow, this is amazing what Jesus has done. Or maybe they met him somewhere else. Maybe they were uh, in a small town or something. And this town had a guy who lived outside the town who had leprosy and was dying. And everybody knew, you know, the Frank with leprosy or whatever this guy's name was. And then one day Jesus walks up and he touches him on the face. And these, you know, Cleopas and the wife, they were there, this husband and wife team, and they couldn't believe Jesus touched a leper. And then all of a sudden, all this guy's leprosy was gone. Could you imagine seeing something like that in real life? Or maybe they saw him heal a lame man. Maybe one of them was healed, right? Maybe Cleopas at some point had something wrong with him and he had a fever and an illness or whatever. And it's one of the, because we're told in the scriptures that there's a lot of other healings Jesus did that aren't written down, right? He healed a lot of people. So maybe one of these two heard Jesus was in town and let's go. Maybe he can do something about this fever that won't break or maybe, you know. And so they go and Jesus, he leans down and he says, Cleopas, your faith has healed you. And then all of a sudden the fever is gone or the leprosy or the broken leg or what, you know, whatever it was. And so they start to listen to Jesus teach. You know, he shows up, he teaches in the synagogue or something. And then on Monday they're out on the field and they hear him teaching outside of town and, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, all that kind of stuff, right? All of this teaching that Jesus did. And as they hear him teach and they think and they see more and more of Jesus, they start to think to themselves, this guy might be the Messiah, right? This, this might not just be some new prophet. This guy might be pretty important. This might be the guy that we've all been waiting for. And so Cleopas and his wife, or Cleopas, and if it was another dude, we don't know who the other one was, uh, this other disciple... They join up, and they say, Jesus, we're going to follow you around. And they, So they start traveling around with Jesus, and at one point, Jesus takes this guy and sends Cleopas on a mission with the other 70 disciples. And they go out, and they are preaching about the coming of the kingdom, and Cleopas is staying in somebody's house, and they bring him uh, a person who is blind. And they say to Cleopas, you're on this healing mission. I need you to heal my friend. And so Cleopas goes kind of to himself, I don't know how to heal people, 
right? It's pretty terrifying. Jesus told me to, but I don't know how to do it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to close my eyes and I'm going to pray. <laughs> I'm going to just see what happens. And so Cleopas closes his eyes. Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, heal this guy. And then all of a sudden, in this little room, this little dark, dusty room of this first century Jewish house, this guy starts blinking and, whoa, I can see everything. Can you imagine what Cleopas must have been thinking to walk back and then he gets back and all the 70 disciples are there and they're all sharing stories and they all have the same story. I healed somebody. I had no idea what I was doing. All I did was pray in the name of Jesus. This guy was healed. So now these disciples are really starting to get excited and they travel to Jerusalem with Jesus for um, the Passover week. And as they're on the way, uh, you know, they're kind of working their way down towards Jerusalem. Uh, they get a note, they get a, um, you know, word that Jesus' friend has died. So Jesus goes to the, the grave. He goes to the tomb. He stands outside the tomb. He says, Lazarus, buddy, uh, I need you to go ahead and just come on out of there. And Cleopas is standing there. He's like, what? No, like we can heal blind people, but seriously? And then Lazarus does the mummy walk, you know, because he's probably all tied up. And he probably tripped over a rock, and then everybody went and helped him. And Cleopas is like, that guy was dead. Could you imagine what that would be like to sit there? And you start thinking, yeah, this guy is definitely the Messiah. My whole life I've been taught about what the Messiah is. And this guy is it. He is the one who is going to become the king of Israel. He's the new David who's going to restore our people to their former glory. Our kingdom is suddenly going to be like the days of Solomon. Good things are coming. And you get to Jerusalem, and you're, you, Cleopas, you know, he goes, he throws his jacket down in front of Jesus while he's riding the donkey into town. Things are exciting. Jesus has these big theological battles with the, the teachers in the city of Jerusalem. And then Cleopas, see, he's, one, he's not one of the 12, him and his wife or this other disciple. They're one of the 72, or, you know, they're one of the bigger group of disciples and women. They go have their own Passover meal somewhere else. They're not inside the city. They're maybe or, you know, right outside or right inside, but they're somewhere else. And they say to Peter and James and John and all these guys and Judas, all right, guys, see you tomorrow. They take off Thursday afternoon. They go, they eat a big meal. They drink a lot of wine. Okay, I don't remember. It was in my other sermon, but... They drank, what was it, four cups of wine or six cups of wine? Or it was all, I don't remember off the top of my head. It was a lot of wine. So they drink all this wine. They stuff themselves with lamb and this delicious food. And then they go to bed. And then they wake up. They sleep in. Okay, we're late. Temple starts at 9 a.m., right? So they start, the first temple service is at 9. Who knows? Maybe they tried to go to that. Maybe they were like, let's skip the first one. Let's go to the second one at 11. Right? If you've ever been to a church with two services, that's what everybody does. Let's go to the one at 11. So they go into town, and there's a buzz. People, you know, a lot of people are talking, what's going on? And he pulls somebody aside. They arrested Jesus. They're killing him. What? Your whole world would just be completely turned upside down. Runs. Maybe they went, ran to the cross. Maybe they thought, we're one of his disciples. We don't know what to do. They ran. They found the upper room where all the disciples were hiding and hanging out. At some point, they all got together during that day, a bunch of these disciples and these women and the people who were following Jesus. And they said, he's, he, it's done, he's dead. John just came back from the cross. It's like officially over. And the disciples, the rest of them who had scattered, start to trickle in. 
And can you imagine the disappointment? Okay, this is nothing like it, but a long time ago, the Niners were in the Super Bowl. 2012, and I was a youth pastor. We had a big party. Okay, if, have you ever been in a room full of like 50 youth group kids? Can you just right now try to imagine the noise level? Okay. The Niners lost the Super Bowl. Everybody cleaned up the room in complete silence and left, and nobody said anything, and their parents picked them up, and they were very... It was like that times a million, right? They thought this guy was going to be the Messiah, and they sit there, and, and they sit there, and wasn't this the guy? This is the guy who was going to beat the Romans. That, like, it's just a crazy kind of unfathomable amount of disappointment. Or like another example is... a. I love these videos. You ever see the video of the prank where they TiVo, okay, TiVo is not a word anymore, but you know what I mean, right? They TiVo the, uh, the uh, lottery winnings from yesterday, the numbers, and then they go buy those same numbers, and then they make their spouse think they won the lottery. They play back yesterday's one with the numbers, or the friend or whoever, and the guy gets real excited. Like, it's even more disappointment because of how excited the guy gets. He starts bouncing around, we're billionaires. You know, he's starting to call his job to quit and everything, and then they tell him what happened, and then they always just fall apart. That's the kind of level of falling apart we have here, right? These disciples, it's not going well. So now, Cleopas and them, the stuff happens Sunday morning. They don't know exactly what's up. We'll get into this. It seems like this guy doesn't really believe the resurrection has happened. This is now, we're going to pick up the story. Last week we read, the women go to the tomb, they see the angel, but nobody's seen Jesus yet. The women come back, and they say, we saw this angel, he told us Jesus is risen. Peter went, found the empty tomb, but they don't really know what's going on. So what does Cleopas do? I think what he does is he decides to go home. I live a few miles away, I'm going to head back. I'm going to go back to my house. Start over, I guess. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. In Luke 24, we're in verse 13. Uh, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So this is still that Sunday. This is our two disciples, Cleopas and this unnamed disciple. And they're going to a little village called Emmaus, which is just, what is it? Seven, it's seven miles away from Jerusalem. So Think about how far seven miles is, right? It's not that far. This is like walking from Embarcadero to where Kathy lives down by the Cow Palace. Like our city is about seven miles square, right? So it's just like walking from one side of our city to the other. And they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. So this is what they're talking about, the empty tomb. They're talking about the women coming back with this report that they had seen the empty tomb, that these angels had showed up. It's a pretty, okay, we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, or was it last week? We talked about the plausibility structures, right? Okay, if one person comes to you and says, hey, I saw an angel and he told me something, most of the time you go, okay, really? Okay, whatever. But if two people come to you and say, we all saw this angel, we both saw this angel, then you go, really, maybe? An angel? Seriously? Okay, but what, how many women were named? At least three or four were named, and there were probably a few others there, right? So four, five, six women, whatever it was, come back. Women you've known and trusted for years. And, you know, like uh, some of these are like the moms of some of the disciples, right? These are respected women, right? And they come back, hey, we saw this angel. You got to at least go, maybe, probably. What? It, it, it would make you at least stop and think. And so that's what they're doing. So they're walking and 
They're talking about the women's report. They're talking about Peter and John who went and found the empty tomb. And, okay, this reformatted all my slides. That's a bummer. Anyway, I just follow along here. <laughs> While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Cleopas and this other disciple, these two disciples, they're walking home to Emmaus. Or we're not told why, but let's assume, let's assume they're going home. They're walking, and Jesus shows up. This is the first actual appearance we have in the book of Luke of the risen Jesus. Um, he actually shows up at some point before this to Peter, and uh, we'll see that um, <clears throat> later on. And we know from the book of John, at this point, he's already, because this is Sunday, kind of getting close to the afternoon, evening. Um, he's already appeared to Mary Magdalene when she says she thinks he's the gardener and stuff. That's probably already happened. So this is the first appearance, though, in Luke that we have of uh, Jesus. And he shows up, and he's walking along the road. Now, real quick here, you got to remember something. Um, Jerusalem is a pretty small, I mean, it's a city, but in terms of like what we think of as cities and towns and stuff, we would call Jerusalem a town, you know, compared to modern standards, even though it's a big city for the ancient world. And so Jerusalem, though, is this relatively small space. It's kind of like, I'm, I don't know for sure. <clears throat> I'm guessing it's about as big as like the northeast part of San Francisco, right? Our little District 3. You know, there's a couple of hills and there's some, it's not that big. You can walk across it and everything. But for Passover, like a million or two million people show up to this little town. And so there are, every road going in and out of Jerusalem is packed with people. Like when you're walking out of the Giants game, like, you know, the cattle walk. You guys know that when you walk out of a stadium and uh, you, nobody can move. So maybe not quite that bad, but there's a lot of people around. And so there, it would not be unusual for a bunch of people to be walking together. And the Jewish people, I mean, for a couple reasons, this was a communal culture, uh, a hospitality culture, meaning people were actually nice to each other back then. It wasn't like the New York subway where nobody's allowed to talk to each other, you know. Uh, they were actually nice to each other, and they had something that was in common, was they're all there for this religious ceremony. Right? It's like when I go to a pastor's conference, I don't need to know somebody to sit down at a table and have lunch with them. Why? Because we're both, we have this commonality. We're both pastors. So people walk on the road, and they talk, and they meet each other, and it's part of the whole experience. So nothing here is unusual except that when Jesus shows up and starts talking to his own disciples, they don't recognize him. And it's not because they're a bunch of dummies. It says specifically that they were kept from recognizing him. It's not said how. I don't know. God just made it so they couldn't see who he was. This way, Jesus can have a real conversation. Uh, he can have a real conversation with these two. So verse 17. And he said to them, so Jesus is now walking with them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So his question is very basic. What are you guys talking about? Now, this is one of those things where Jesus is kind of playing along. Of course, he knows what they're talking about. You know, he's the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ, right? He knows what's going on. But this is a teaching, counseling moment, right? If you ever teach, you ask a lot of questions you already know the answers to, to pull things out of people. Um, a lot of times, therapists do this, too. You know, they know what you think, but <laughs> they, they need you to say it out loud so that they can process with you and that sort of thing. And so this is what Jesus is doing. And so what they do, he says, what are you guys talking about? And they stop walking. That's a very important detail. They're that bummed out. They can't even walk and talk about this at the same time. You ever been in that kind of a mood where you're just so upset about something you have to sit down for a second? 
So they do. They sit down on a rock or something, and then verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas. This is how we know his name. So we don't know the other one's name. Uh, Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? So this disciple, like I said, is not mentioned anywhere else except here, this name. And what he says, Cleopas' answer is, really, you don't know what we're talking about? You don't know what's going on? Would you live under a rock? <laughs> you know? That's the modern version. Okay, uh, do you guys remember January 6th? The whole uh, let's storm the Capitol thing? Okay, uh, I had no idea that was happening until it was over. I saw about it later on. Here's what happened. It was a Wednesday. I think it was, okay, I'm like 90% sure this is what happened, right? It was a Wednesday. Kayla's, yeah. So then I texted Kayla or something, are you guys coming over tonight for dinner, for missional family dinner? And she texted back, are we still having group? And I said, why not? I was sitting in my van at the beach, looking at the waves, reading my Bible, studying Luke, you know, listening to Handel's Messiah really loud on my speakers. That's what I do my fireplace going on my phone. I had no idea January 6th was happening. And Kayla had to be like, are you the only one in Jerusalem that sits in your van and has no idea what's going on? That's what they're asking here. They say to Jesus that they don't know it's Jesus. You don't know what's going on? The crucifixion was a pretty big event. It was all the buzz in Jerusalem, right? How is it possible that somebody that's been here this week wouldn't know wouldn't know the, the, about what's going on. So verse 19, and he said to them, Jesus says, I love this. He goes, what things? Jesus, again, is playing dumb because he wants them to say out loud what's happened. He's doing this teaching thing. But first, what he needs them to do is explain the whole thing in a way that's completely wrong so that he could tell them the way that's completely right. So the rest of verse 19, they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now let's listen to this description of how they describe Jesus here. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. So look at how they describe him. First, uh, he was a prophet. Now, remember, they were his disciples. They probably traveled with him and heard him. And they grew up reading the Old Testament. And they read a whole bunch of stuff about this one prophet named Elijah. What did Elijah do? He walked around. He brought little kids back from the dead. He had standoffs with the leaders. And he boldly proclaimed the word of God. The book of Luke specifically portrays Jesus a lot like a new Elijah. And so as they're reading, they're like, man, this guy, he's a lot like Elijah and Elijah's protege, like successor Elisha, very confusing. Elijah and Elisha. Um, uh, they start noticing, man, Jesus is a prophet a lot like these guys. So the first way they describe him to this stranger on the road, he's a prophet. He's just like Elijah and Elisha. He was mighty in word. So again, maybe they were there at the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said this, but I tell you this. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's an interesting little verse where it says, I don't know exactly, but I'm paraphrasing, you know, the people were like marveling at the teaching of Jesus because he spoke like one who actually had some authority. So he's mighty in word, but he's also, I mean, oh, and he proved that this last week as he destroyed all of the, the leaders, the religious leaders in that theological rap battle. But it's not just words that he's mighty in. He's mighty in deed. 
He's raising people from the dead. He's healing people. He's walking on water. Right? That's pretty crazy. He's turning water into wine. You ever hear that joke about Jesus goes to the bar? They're like, what can I get you? And he goes, just a water, please. I love that joke, yeah. Feel free to use that at school and be the most popular kid there. Right? So they're seeing all this stuff. They're hearing these stories. You know, he's mighty indeed what he does. And so they say, here's this guy, and look what happened to him. Our, our chief priests, they're saying, these are our leaders, our people. They took him, and they had him killed. They had him crucified brutally. Now, in the telling of that whole story, what are they missing? It seems right. It's like one of those things where if you get part of the details right, you can still be wrong because you're missing the main point. They're missing the whole Messiah part. Cleopas does not say to Jesus on the road, telling him about Jesus. Wait, yeah, is that how that worked? Okay, he's not. He misses the whole part about Jesus as a savior. They don't have the full story. They have half of the story. Right? It's like, okay, last night, uh, I finished at about 3.30, 4 in the morning. This was one of those nights where I couldn't stop reading and I couldn't go to sleep anyway, so I was like, I might as well finish my book. I finished The Lord of the Rings last night. I'm very excited. You know, I mean, for like the 10th time or something. But I finished The Lord of the Rings. Now think about that story. John, tell me the story of The Lord of the Rings. Oh, it's a story about a hobbit and some jewelry, and they go on a trip and they see some cool places. Is that the story of The Lord of the Rings? I mean, kind of. It is. It's about a hobbit and some jewelry. And they do see some cool places, but it's not the story, right? I've missed the main point. It's the story of the triumph of good over evil and the epic struggle and all, right? They've missed the main point of the story. They've missed the, hey, this Jesus is the Messiah. And so they kind of get into it a little. Look what they say. Well, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it's now the third day since these things happened. So we had hoped he was the one. You know what that means, the way you say that? Nobody says, hey, tell me about your new girlfriend. And then they go, well, I hoped she was the one. Nobody says that meaning she is the one, right? They don't think Jesus now, they've lost the faith that he is the Savior. Now, remember, also, the level of desperation and hope leading up to the time of Jesus that the people of Israel had for the coming of the Messiah. There were tons of other guys who showed up and said, hey, I'm the Messiah, Right? The reason was because this promise was so important to these people. There was like this desperation, this hope. And the early part of Luke is packed with references to this hope. Mary talks about it, Zechariah, uh, Simeon and Anna from the other gospel, even the wise men, the genealogy in Matthew. We're like in Matthew. The coming of Jesus is built around the structure of these people were really hoping that the Messiah would come. To the point that one of these prophets right, was like... Um, man, God promised me I would get to see this baby and then I could die happy. And sees baby Jesus, okay, now he says, now I can die happy. Like, he's that excited about, I just want to see the baby. And so these disciples were, we hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But now it's been three days. It's been the third day. So when the Bible talks about the, the third day since Jesus, from the crucifixion to the resurrection, in our modern minds, we think of days as 24 hours. When we say three days, Right? We think three 24-hour periods, right? Uh, but in this culture, they're much more loosey-goosey with time and words and stuff. And what they mean is he was dead on Friday, he was dead on part of Saturday, he was dead on part of Sunday. That's three days, right? So now they're saying it's been that third day. 
And then verse 22, moreover, some of the women from our company, so some of these women disciples, amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, so that's Peter and John, they went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So now these two disciples, Cleopas and this other disciple, they start to tell the story of what has happened this morning and why they're so confused. The women went to the tomb. They came back with this report. Peter and John went to the tomb. They came back with the same report minus the angels. Basically, what they're saying is something is up, but we don't know what. Okay, you know what really sucks is when you're in the dark in a big situation. You have no idea what's going on. Uh, that stinks, right? Like, imagine you had cancer, but you didn't even know you had cancer. That's not a good place to be in, right? But you know what's even worse is being sick, and then the doctors have no idea why. Like, you know some of it, but you don't know all of it. You know something's wrong, but you, they, you, it adds an extra layer of anxiety. That's kind of the place where these disciples are. They know something is going on. They know something is up. They haven't figured it out yet, the anxiety is killing them, and if you notice, nothing that they've said so far is, and we think he might be alive. That's not going through their heads. They're leaving town. I'm out of here. I got better things to do. I got to get back to work on Monday or whatever, you know. They're, nothing, set, nothing here is showing like a great faith. It's the same thing with, you remember the women, when the angels said to the women, Remember, don't you guys remember when Jesus told you about all this? And then they start to go, oh, yeah. But at first, it wasn't like an empty tomb. Oh, I bet he's alive. That's not how it happened. Right? So these disciples not showing a ton of faith. And then he said to them, all right, let's stop here for a sec. I cut off the rest of this verse because I want you to think about it. If you imagine you're Jesus and then be thankful that you're not, right? I'll be thankful you're not Jesus. And uh, imagine you're Jesus for a second. How would you counsel these two? What would you say to these two disciples that you've known and loved? It'll all work out. You guys, better days are ahead. Pick yourselves up. It's going to be okay. Not so much. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus' answer is an exasperated, What are you, an idiot? <laughs> Right? You guys have spent your entire lives reading, right? This is what he, well, first he calls them foolish, which was kind of a big deal in the ancient world to use the word foolish. When our, the word foolish in our culture, in, in our world, is not that harsh of a word, right? If, you know, that was foolish. That's usually what we say, like, yesterday when uh, Ward, uh, you know, hit Geno Smith while he was sliding, and then the Seahawks got three free points. And I went, Ward, foolish, right? That's about, you know, it was a snap decision and it was a wrong decision, you know. But foolish in the time of scriptures was kind of a big deal, right? It was like maybe closer to our word, stupid, <laughs> right? If I says to you, if I called you foolish, you'd probably, nah, all right, that's kind of weird. But if I were like, you know you're stupid, right? That's kind of a, that's a little, it's got a little more sting to it, doesn't it? So this is kind of what Jesus does. He says, you foolish ones. Then he says, you're slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. You guys don't believe this Old Testament stuff. That was another big deal to say to somebody in the first century. You don't believe the Old Testament to a first century Jewish person. They, see, they had read 
the way the first century worked, a lot of these Jewish teachers and oops, the whole Jewish religion was they read these parts about the, the, the glory of the Messiah and how great he was going to be and how he's going to restore the kingdom. And they said, this is what the Messiah is going to do. And then all these passages about the suffering of the Messiah and the humiliation of the Messiah. They took those passages and they said, we're just going to put those over there and just kind of, you know, we're going to leave that stuff back there. That's what happened. And so Jesus is saying, this is what you guys are doing. You don't believe, you believe some of what the prophets have spoken, but you don't believe it all. So Jesus gets into it. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? The key word here is necessary. Right? Think about the difference between something that's necessary and something that's a good idea. All right, let's go back to our hospital illustration. If you want to be healthy as a goal in your life, right? Um, like let's say you have, I don't know, low blood pressure or something. You have to take blood pressure medicine or you will die. That medicine is necessary. It's not a good idea to take the medicine. It's you better take this medicine or you're going to die. But think about something else, like a vitamin every night before you go to bed. Is a vitamin a good idea? Yeah, probably, you know, whatever. It's healthy, yada, yada. I know Melissa always tries to make me take them. Um, I hope she never looks behind my nightstand. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't, we don't have a dog. <laughs> right? No, it's th- do you see the difference, though? Something that's necessary is kind of a big deal. And what Jesus says is not... You know, I decided as the Messiah that I was going to suffer and die. He said it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory. But necessary for what? What's the end goal? It's our salvation. In order for the Messiah to save his people and then enter into his glory, first, right, he had to come down to our level and then he had to suffer the wrath of God. And what Jesus is telling these two disciples is you should know this. It's all right there in the scriptures. And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right, I don't have these slides. These are in the, what did we call it? Booklet. They're in the booklet, but just listen to this. You don't have to read it. Just listen up. Okay. So there's a couple of ways that Jesus is all over the scriptures, the Old Testament, and the suffering and dying. Let me give you a few of them, though. The first way is just they're straight-up direct prophecies that say this is what the Messiah is going to suffer. Genesis 3.15, the curse of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So God is cursing the serpent. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So uh, God tells the enemy, the Messiah is going to come and you're going to get his foot. You're going to hit him in the foot and then he's going to step on your face. So you're going to hurt him a little, and he's going to hurt you a lot. That's the first thing, right, is you can't ignore that part, though. You're going to bruise his heel. Then Isaiah 53, we could read the whole chapter, like we do usually on um, Good Friday, but we won't. Anyway, here, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It, like, specifically says he has to get wounded so that we can get healed. Or Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So the first way that the Old Testament, I could have, look, when I started gathering these 
references up. I forget how many there were, but it was like a couple of pages. I could have just done this for the whole sermon. Let me read to you all these ways. So there's just direct promises. But then there's also what we call typological patterns, meaning we've talked about this a lot in the book of Luke, but the Old Testament is full of patterns that are picked up in a greater way. So like, let me give you some examples. The whole system of Old Testament sacrifices. You take a lamb, you take it to the temple in Jerusalem, then you kill it, spill the blood, and God says, okay, that lamb has paid for your sins. That's how the system worked. Jesus is the true and better lamb of God. This is what John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus coming, right? He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or think about Abraham's, boy, they're really going for it, huh? Think about Abraham's blessing, uh, the covenant between God and Abraham, right? Where he says, I will bless the nations through you, right? Jesus is the way that that blessing is fulfilled. Or think about Abraham and Isaac. You know the story where he takes him up the hill? And that hill is actually the same hill where eventually Jesus would be crucified. They built Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, like that same mountain where Isaac is taken up by Abraham. And that's a really awkward story. We're going to go up this hill, and Abraham, I need you to kill your kid. So what does Abraham do? Okay, gets the knife out. He's about to kill his kid, and then God goes, no, no, man, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. So he doesn't kill him. But the thing is, there's more to that story. There's, you're supposed to say, okay, you're supposed to look at it and go, where Abraham didn't have to kill his son, where Abraham got to take the knife away, our father didn't right? There was a greater Isaac who took the knife. Or then there's like examples like, you know, Jesus picks up like manna. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. God gave the people bread to sustain them in the wilderness. And Jesus says, just like that manna sustained them in the wilderness, I spiritually sustain my people. Or you have uh, stories like the judges, you know, the story of Samson. I don't understand at all why we have like comic books in Christian bookstores about Samson. Like he's some sort of a superhero. This guy stinks right? You read the whole story, and he takes a vow. It's called the Nazarite vow, and there's all these rules when you take the Nazarite vow, and God says to him, basically, as long as you're taking this Nazarite vow, I'm going to make you super strong, and it's going to be awesome, and the whole story of Samson is one by one. He goes through every one of those things and breaks every part of his vow until the end when they cut his hair off, and then he's not strong anymore, and then he gives up his life to save his people, so what we have with the story of Samson is a flawed leader who gives his life up to destroy the enemies of God. And we look at that and we should go, man, wouldn't it be great if Samson didn't stink? And then we think about Jesus. He is the not flawed. He's the perfect leader who gave up his life to destroy the enemies of God and to save the people. But then we have David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath. We talk about this. I've said this before, but basically this story always gets taught like this. You have giants in your life and you need to slay these giants. But that's not the story the story is the people of God are standing there and they're afraid to confront the enemy because it's too great. They don't think they can win. And it's probably true. They couldn't win. So one guy goes, I'll win the whole battle for us. He goes and he kills Goliath and everybody who's, who's afraid and shivering in their boots behind him gets credit for his victory. We're supposed to look at that and go, that's exactly what the Messiah does. He comes and he wins the victory for us. And then we move forward, right? We have Solomon. I'll fly through some of these. Who's like, 
a flawed example of wisdom, but Jesus is the perfect example of wisdom. We have kings and judges who are these broken rulers who always let the people down. And then Jesus comes, he's the king of kings who leads and rules perfectly. Another interesting one is, you know, what's Jesus, is somebody shouted out, what's Jesus's favorite title for himself? What does he always call himself? Son of man. He doesn't call himself Christ. He doesn't call himself Messiah. He calls himself the son of man. Why is that? Well, for two reasons. In the book of Daniel, the son of man is this glorious, exalted, godlike figure. And in the book of Ezekiel, the son of man means son of man. He's a person. And so Jesus kind of combines those two meanings into I am this godlike, exalted man figure, right? And so as we read those two, we'll talk about this when we get to Ezekiel, but, you know, we read that and we go, wow, Jesus fulfills this. We have the priests all over the Old Testament who were supposed to stand between God and the people. They were the go-between. What we learn is, though, they were pretty messed up and flawed, and there's a lot of really horrible stories about some of these priests, And it's supposed to make us go, boy, I wish there was a true and better priest. I wish there was a perfect priest. I wish there was a perfect go-between with us and God. And the book of Hebrews tells us that priest is Jesus, right? And then we have things like he's the greatest example of the suffering servant from Psalm 22. He actually reads or he quotes Psalm 22 from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Which was a psalm that was written, I think, by David. I could be wrong about that, but I think it's by David. And what he's saying is, in this situation on earth right now, I'm suffering and I feel like I've been forsaken by God. And the the Messiah is the ultimate example of being forsaken by the Father. The full wrath of God poured out on him. Anyway, I could keep going. There's a bunch of these, right? There's like prophets, temple. Jesus is the perfect place where God meets humanity. Jonah, thrown into the whale for three days and three nights, and then spit out to go proclaim the good news, right? I could go on. We don't really have time for an entire walk through the Old Testament today. Although, I don't know. What do you guys want to do? No? Okay. There's podcast people. They're telling me no. Jesus, this is what Jesus did. Now, how long do you think it would take to walk seven miles? What's the math on that? How long does it take to walk a mile? 20 minutes? Right? I ran a six-minute mile once. That was pretty good. Right, so what, 20 minutes to walk a mile? And if you're walking and talking, slow, right? So, I mean, yeah, we're, there's a couple hours they're walking, two, three hours, you know, I don't know. And it says they spent that whole time walking, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, meaning starting at the beginning, Jesus walked them through the Old Testament. Boy, part of me can't wait to meet Cleopas in heaven. And what I'm going to say to him is, you suck for not writing this down. Thanks for nothing, you useless. No. Honestly, if they had just written all this down, it would make writing all my sermons a lot easier. (laughs) Right? But uh, we can get into why they didn't write this down later. But um, it's it's the most, probably the greatest sermon, the greatest Old Testament teaching of all time. So then they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he stayed with them. Uh, so they walked this whole distance, and then Jesus kind of pretends like he's, he's going to keep going. But this is a hospitality culture. He knows they're going to make him stay, so he does. So he goes and he stays with them. Um, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and then he vanished from, her, their, from their sight. So he took the bread and he 
blessed it, and they, then they recognized him. Okay, so a lot of people have been, for years, kind of, uh, a lot of folks will read this and go, it's because it's just like communion. He took the bread and broke it. Okay, the problem is communion was on Thursday, and these guys have not seen Jesus since that happened. These are the 70 disciples. This is the outer ring of disciples. They weren't in the room when Jesus gave them communion. And what happened right after communion is Jesus was arrested and then crucified. Saturday, Sunday happens. I'm guessing on Saturday, Peter didn't get up and teach the other disciples about communion and share the whole story. You know, I don't know. I just think they have probably spent a lot of time with Jesus. And watching Jesus get up and say, hey, we should have dinner. Let me pray for our meal. You know, something about that. The father lifted the veil from their eyes or whatever was going on. They, they recognize him. Okay, again, we have to use our imaginations. So this is, when we use our imaginations, we should never fill in details that completely change the meaning of the story. That's a bad idea. But we should always just kind of imagine what would this like to actually be there? And I know exactly what happened here. Okay, Jesus breaks the bread and then they, the veil is lifted. And they recognize him. He smiles he winks, and then he disappears. The world's greatest magician, right? I, I guarantee there was a wink. I don't know if winking was a first century thing, but if it was, I guarantee that's what Jesus did. All right, verse 32. Then they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn while, within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? Right? Even before they knew it was Jesus, this teaching hit them hard, right? This is what we want when we read the Bible, for our hearts to burn while the scriptures are opened. I remember the first time this ever happened to me. I know this feeling that they're talking about exactly. I grew up in a church that barely taught the Bible. We didn't, you know, and the Bible that I got was a lot of like, here's the rules you need to follow, or Jesus doesn't love you so much. That's not exciting. That's not the gospel. That's not, that doesn't burn. There was no part of me that ever thought the Bible was interesting or exciting. And then one day I showed up to church, and our pastor had just quit, and we had all these guys rotating teaching. And this guy got up, his name was Todd, and I sat in the back by myself. I took the bus in the morning. I was a little late. I came in, and he taught the book of Isaiah. And that for some reason, the scriptures burned in my, the same idea. I know exactly this feeling. For the first time, I thought, hey, maybe I could see God in the scriptures. Maybe I can actually change my life and learn something here. Right? I was still a kind of a brand new believer. This is what's going on. And then... They rose that same hour, and they turned, and they ran to Jerusalem. I love that. And they found the eleven and those who were gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. Oh, and then, uh, sorry, who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. So, okay, I've never walked from Embarcadero to the other side of town. Uh, that's a long walk. My dad had to do this, actually. I think um, he was in the tunnel during the 89 quake. And so he came out of the tunnel in Barcadero, and we lived in the Excelsior. So he walked all the way across. And he got home in the middle of the night, and he was exhausted and tired. you got to be pretty excited to go, you know what, I'm going to turn around and head back for this other seven miles. And that's what they do. And they show up. And what do the other disciples, they start to tell him the story. We've seen Jesus. And then did the 11 go, yeah, duh, I know. Yeah, welcome to three hours ago, man. We already seen him. He appeared to Simon. You know, so we don't know anything about this. Um, Simon is Peter, by the way, Simon Peter. We don't know anything about this meeting with Peter and Jesus. Okay, we know from John, the one that happens later on, Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Yeah, you know I love you, dude. What's going on? And they do that three times, right? The feed my lambs thing. 
Peter never really talks about this. I bet this was a pretty intense, shameful, like, have you, you know that feeling of just like you've let somebody down and then you have to see them face to face? That times a billion. I don't know, and I think there's probably a lot of stuff that was said here that they were like, we're not going to write this down. But the good news is someday you're going to be dead and you can go ask Peter all about it and I'm sure when we're in eternity he'll tell you all about it. So the disciples, Cleopas and the other disciple, they come back. Everybody already knows. Then they told what had happened on the road and how it was known to them in the breaking of bread. So they recap their story. And, okay, that's where we're going to stop today. Now, here's what I want to say about this passage. Something really interesting here. We, let's talk about us for a second. We love good stories. Why couldn't I put the Lord of the Rings down last night at 3.30 in the morning when I know... Actually, I knew. I can sleep in. I don't have to get up for church. <laughs> That's pretty great, right? But why, why do we, you know, John, you've talked to me about this. You read that, like, 85-book series or whatever. You know, what was it called? Wheel of Time. Yeah, he was reading that. And I remember just how excited he was about the story. And he's in the middle of book 48 or whatever. I don't remember how many. What are they, like 12 or something? But he's in the middle of a bunch of them. And why is it that John can't put this book down? Why is it that we binge-watch TV? Anybody else do this? Me and Melissa find a show, and we watch the whole show in two days. And if there's a show where they make you wait a week, I hate it. How dare they do this to me? What is this, the 1850s or something? Get out of here with this not binging TV. Why do we love good movies? Even video games have stories, right? Because we're, we love stories. Because the history of the world is a story. This is why we long for the princess to find the prince why we hope uh, for, uh, I don't know who's a bad guy, Uncle Scar, isn't that, you know, from The Lion King? That's why we hope for Scar to be defeated. Uh, it's why we want the ring to be destroyed and for the world to be saved. It's why we love interesting characters, because the reality of the world, the reality is the world is filled with real people who are living real stories every single day. The world is not a random series of chaotic events, the world, the history of the world, and all that has happened follows a story. And what scripture tells us is that that story has an author, and that God is the author of that story. And the great part of this is that God didn't write the story from afar. He wrote the story, and then he wrote himself into the story. That's the beautiful part about this gospel story. Um, there's an author. Do you guys know who Dorothy Sayers was? Anybody? You don't know that name from way back in the day. She wrote a bunch of books. Um, she was one of the first women to attend Oxford. That's how she kind of got really famous. Um, she wrote a bunch of detective fiction. Okay, I want to say this was like the 30s, but I could be wrong. I don't remember. Um, and the, her Sherlock Holmes, right, her you know, main character was this guy named Lord Peter Whimsey. And in her stories, it was like a bunch of different stories, like a series, right? She wrote in a character named Harriet Vane, who was an Oxford-educated woman who wrote detective stories for a living. And in the world that she had written, this character of Harriet Vane falls in love with and is the romantic partner of her main character, Lord Whimsey. It looks like what happened was the real Dorothy Sayers loved this character so much that she had come up with that she wrote herself into the story and then made herself fall in love with uh, Lord Peter Whimsey. That's kind of what God has done. He wrote this great grand story, 
And then he said he fell in love with the people in the story. I mean, I'm oversimplifying this a lot. Let's not, don't send me emails about the order of this. Uh, but he wrote himself into the story to rescue his people. And by entering the story and by rescuing his people, what he's done now is he, his death and resurrection, he's collected this group of followers. And what he says to this group of followers is this. He's walking on the road, and he tells Cleopas and this other disciple, you should know the story because it's all been written down for you. But at the same time, what that is, is that's an invitation that the story's not over. Right? Jesus is saying this story is still happening. And so the people of God, what we're invited to do is be a part of the rest of the story. But we don't always do that. We trade our story, the gospel story, and we live these other wrong versions. We, we make up our own stories. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, which is one of my favorite books. It's on the back table if you want to grab one. Uh, he says, all that we call human history, so money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the law... Um, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Right? We talk about idolatry a lot, but what idolatry really is is just living a different story. It's making up your own story and saying this is what's true. The American dream, right? the happy ending at the end of that story is what? Life of comfort and security. Now, I'm going to live into this story to try to find this comfort and this security. Or the story of like, you know, the modern story of sexual freedom. The happy ending of that is just unrestrained sexual pleasure. Or, you know, I wrote a bunch down here. Existential identity that we talk about a lot. Or success. Or the religion of Pharisees and legalism. Or family. Whatever it is. Beauty. We have all these things that we think, this is what's going to make me happy. And to get to the, the happy ending, right, they lived happily ever after. I have to live in this story. And what the scripture tells us is most of those stories are wrong and especially God's people, we're not supposed to live into these lesser stories. We're called to live into the greater story, the big story, right? the gospel story, God's story. And so the application for us then is that because Jesus really did rise from the dead and because he is still alive and because he is still, we're in, next week we're going to talk about the ascension. Or no, two weeks we're going to talk about the ascension. Um, and we're going to talk about how Jesus still is reigning and ruling right now. What that means is the story is still going on. The Cleopas walking on the side of the road and meeting Jesus with the other disciple is a really cool story. It's a really cool part. It's like a chapter in a big story. But here's the thing. We're living the next chapters. Everything you do when you get up in the morning is part of this story. What you do with your time and what you do with your day how you treat people, how you spend your money, all of this stuff is the next part of the story. You'll not believe how many Christians I meet that find out we're part of an organization called Acts 29. And they say to me, what's the 29th chapter of Acts about again? I forget. And then I go, there's only 28 chapters, guy. And then they're real confused. And then I have to explain. The reason is we believe planting churches and living missionally and doing the things we're doing, we're living the next part of the story of God's people. And so this is our tie-in. You know, I always try to take our sermons and tie them into your Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pray for people, ask them about their lives, bless them in ways nobody else would, share your story with them, and then talk to them about the gospel. Our missional living, our whole mission as a church is to love and to meet our neighbors and to build these meaningful relationships. Why do we do that? 
right? Because the story's not over, right? Jesus says to these disciples, how come you don't know the story looking backwards? I think at the same time, he could look at a lot of his church folks now and say, how come you don't believe that the story is still moving forwards? Right? The resurrection is sort of the pinnacle of the story, but it goes in both directions. So as we read our Bibles and as we're people of the word, which we should be, I think an important lesson from this is Jesus saying, you should know this kind of stuff if you're my people. Right? You should know your Bible. The Bible is not a cute collection of fortune cookie sayings. It's this grand, great, wonderful story. You should know this story. But at the same time, the more you understand this story, the more you get a better picture of where you are in that same story. Right? The Lord of the Rings is three books. Right? There, well, it's actually, a, okay, it's more books than that, but it's broken into three sections, right? Five books or six books or something. But the idea is, you know, Frodo right there in the middle, he's, there was still more to do. There was some that had already happened, but the story was still moving forward in the middle of the two towers. And that's kind of the situation we're in, is there is still more story going forward. We don't want to be, remember a long time ago, I talked about the bomb shelter church, where a lot of these churches, they just bunker down and they get in their bomb shelters and just let the world burn, right? I don't care what happens out there. That's not the kind of church we want to be. Right? I don't want to be that kind of, I don't want to stand, I don't want to get to heaven and be like, what kind of church were you guys? And then I'm going to meet some Indian pastor whose church was all sacrificial and they were great. And then, you know, he was martyred for his faith. And then go meet some Chinese house pastor who has a similar story. And then our church goes, and we kind of took it seriously. Right? I want to get there. I want to sit down with these guys, and I want to share how we all lived into our parts of the story. Amen? All right. Uh, let's pray. And so, Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the, the, the scriptures that we have, that we can look back and see the patterns of how you've worked and the things that you've done to bring us to where we are now. Lord, right after this part of the book of, of, of Luke is the beginning of Acts, and in that, we read about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the power that your Spirit gives to your people now that you're in heaven, risen, uh, ruling from your throne. So, Lord, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to be upon us, to love and serve our neighbors well. We ask that when we read our scriptures, maybe some people in here are doing reading plans because it's the beginning of the year. We ask that as we, we read our scriptures and we dive into this stuff, that our hearts would, would burn with a passion for you the way that happened here. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive our church when we uh, fall and fail and we live into lesser stories. And just help us reorient our lives and put us back on the right path so that we can be part of your kingdom story, your gospel story that ends in eternity with us enjoying you forever. We pray these things in your name. Amen.